0: Thank okay. to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on the show, we are speaking with Associate Professor of Law Ted De Barbieri, who's also the Director of our Community Economic Development Clinic here at the law school, but he has a new paper out called Excluding Disadvantaged Businesses, and that's going to be in the George Mason Law Review, volume number 28, and it was written back in October 2020. He's still working on edits on it, but it was posted live back in December, and we want to talk about some of his findings from that paper. Before we get to the conversation, though, as always, our reminders here at the top of the episode. Make sure to follow us on social media. That'll keep you in the loop on everything happening here at the law school. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Also, AlbanyLaw.edu/coronavirus. That has all of our COVID-19 updates. And if you want to hear previous episodes of the podcast, you can listen on on all the major services or check out our SoundCloud account. Enough from me, though. Let's get over to one of our first Mondays hosts. Professor Ted Barbieri Back here on the podcast with Professor DeBarbieri And Ted, if you just take a second to introduce yourself to everybody listening to the podcast today.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks, Ben. My name is Ted Barbieri. I direct the Community Economic Development Clinic and I'm on the faculty at Albany Law
0: School. And we're here to talk research today, and we're gonna get into it in just a second, but I did want to just go over where people can find this first. It's called Excluding Disadvantaged Businesses, and it was in the George Mason Law Review. And if, if you're looking for a link to that, it's in the show notes for this episode. So please take a look at that and then maybe Formulate your own opinions, and then you can come back and listen to the podcast. But let's get into it here, Ted, and uh, let's start with some context first. What are disadvantaged businesses?
1: Disadvantaged businesses are uh, is a term of art that comes from federal law. The Small Business Administration, which is the federal agency tasked with aiding small businesses, was was formed in the early 20th century defines disadvantaged, disadvantaged businesses uh, under two prongs. The first prong is that they are businesses owned by an individual that is either pr- primarily women owned or with particular racial backgrounds. In addition, businesses that meet particular income thresholds. In other words, they don't, gen- they, they generate below a certain dollar amount in terms of sales.
0: So in the paper you say and I'm going to quote you here just so I get it correct laws designed to support small businesses exclude certain disadvantaged businesses from competing in markets by denying government assistance. When I hear that that the question that comes to my mind is how is that possible? Aren't these laws designed to do the exact opposite to support these businesses but instead they're excluding them? Can you just uh how is all this possible?
1: What I what I really get excited about in my research is exploring ways that programs and and laws that are supposed to have one particular outcome have the opposite. And I've, I've worked on sort of similar topics in other areas of economic development in the past. In this instance, I was motivated last summer, I think like a lot of us were about exploring ways that the government could support small businesses during the pandemic. In other ways, support small businesses and address the racial wealth gap. In doing research on particular programs, and I I looked at direct financial assistance to to small businesses, loans, grants, other types of capital assistance tools. I looked at procurement preferences, essentially set asides for businesses who want to sell goods and services to the government. And then I looked at licensing, particularly in the context of recreational cannabis and social equity measures. And in each each case, I found some similarities. In each case, the laws that were designed to get money or to get contracts or to aid in the creation of new businesses in the cannabis industry created pre- significant, significant barriers at law that prevented business owners from accessing markets. Business owners that uh, were In the disadvantaged category, using the small business administrative term, uh, the the small business administration's term again, the disadvantaged businesses is not my term; it comes from federal law. To to go a little bit deeper, the Paycheck Protection Program, which was one of the flagship programs of the CARES Act, which was passed, you know, it's it's March 2021 as we're recording this. um, In May of 2020, uh, Congress acted to get funds out to small businesses and. The Paycheck Protection program, just as an example, expanded the Small business Administration's seven a loan program. What didn't get a lot of press at the t- or coverage at the time was that seven a loan program already excluded owners that had particular particular types of felonies, which I think is a, is a, is one example of a significant barrier to particular types of disadvantaged businesses from getting access to federal support. There was some litigation that I cite to in the paper about removing that prohibition on uh, having businesses that had a particular threshold of ownership with those felony convictions. So that's just, that's just one example. Um, with respect to procurement preferences, it's extremely costly to get designated as a uh, as a woman or my minority owned business enterprise or MWBE. That cost of, of certification can lead to exclusion for many businesses that would, would otherwise benefit. And with, with respect to recreational cannabis and social equity laws, primarily at this at the state, but also the, the local level, in, in most states that have recreational cannabis licensure, the original, uh, they, they started with a medical marijuana or medical care cannabis licensure. And those businesses that were distributing medical marijuana or medical cannabis have an advantage over those who are new entrants. So just by virtue of the, of the of market dynamics, uh, requiring or, or permitting additional owners of recreational cannabis businesses does not actually lead to more owners uh, in the recreational cannabis business, which I thought was particularly troublesome when we, when we uh, look at a policy approach. So using those three examples throughout the piece, that I came to the conclusion that these otherwise well-intentioned laws tend to, in many cases, exclude where they uh, were otherwise designed to expand uh, inclusion.
0: As we're talking here, I can hear the economists in the background i can hear the free market advocates in the background already saying something to the effect of this is why government shouldn't be involved in business the cream should rise to the top what would you say to them
1: i think uh, there's a couple things that i'd say we don't have a free market right we routinely provide just as an example incentives to businesses to locate in particular jurisdictions so we give job creation tax credits we abate local property tax taxes to Move a warehouse or a corporate headquarters. Um, we provide support for some industries, but not others. In about 10 years ago, the state of Washington gave the largest state tax incentive to Boeing to keep jobs in Washington state. And uh, 10 years after, the, the net jobs for Boeing actually decreased in Washington state. So, we you know, government puts their thumb on the scale of in the particular industries routinely, you know, the horses out of the barn. Also, with the Growing and I talk a lot in the paper about the racial wealth gap and the site to live the, the site to the literature there. And frankly, in, in order to address income disparities and the growing income inequality in the country, we need to do something to address. I think you know, law and policymakers need to do something to address income inequality and wealth. Wealth is uh, Access to capital is one of the biggest drivers of small business creation. Small business ownership and owning property is one of the greatest drivers of wealth of intergenerational wealth accumulation. So, not intervening at the moment is is not really an option. I think. Also, particular types of preferences do work in many uh, instances. My my research around procurement preferences, for instance, in the area of transportation are incredibly successful in terms of driving government contracts to disadvantaged businesses. Again, those businesses that are owned by predominantly women, predominantly racial groups that are not represented in in large proportion in small business ownership. So in in many, so I'm not arguing against, for, for instance, procurement preferences, but I think the the challenge is for lawmakers and policymakers is reducing barriers. So reducing costs in, you know, for instance, to businesses getting certified as disadvantaged businesses, to getting certified as a woman-owned or a minority-owned business. Um, there's priorities also for service disabled veterans too, that I think are significant. And in many cases, there's research out there that I say to the paper that, that, that shows that procurement preferences do provide, are able to increase the, the sales and, and business for the particular businesses who are able to benefit.
0: And you mentioned lawmakers right there. Let's focus on lawmakers for just a second. What can they do to make sure disadvantaged businesses aren't harmed by legislation or are included when they do pass new laws? Lawmakers
1: can ensure that small disadvantaged businesses are not harmed by legislation in a couple ways. They can focus on access to the particular laws or programs that are being passed, and they can look at ways to reduce. The barriers. In some instances, mentorship programs have proven useful in terms of bringing more capitalists into the pipeline, more small business owners. So with respect to procurement preferences, I think there's a, there's a couple things lawmakers can do at, at, the, at the various levels of government. I think exploring tax policies that might give incentives for purchasing from disadvantaged businesses or a particular direction that lawmakers might look I think in enforcing anti-discrimination laws, there's also some hope within enforcing the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the ways that could further expand access to, to markets, access to capital for small disadvantaged businesses. With respect to licensing and the regulatory function of government, primarily at the state and local level, I think looking at ways that markets can focus on inclusivity, look at ways to, sh- to share power and benefits, access to capital, access to markets. I think also having a, an appreciation for the consequences of particularly like particular licensing regimes. It doesn't really matter if, if a state or a city will give more licenses to, to a small uh, business or a, a startup or a new entrant, if the market share for most. Uh, businesses in a particular industry is already held by existing uh, participants. So I think looking at consequences, examining externalities when engaging in regulatory functions is
0: key. Okay, so we have the lawmakers there. Most of us, though, aren't lawmakers. Most of us are just regular citizens or consumers. So what can we do address at an individual level to help out disadvantaged businesses?
1: Like a lot of us last summer, I, I was looking at ways to support small businesses in the capital region, owned by women, black- owned businesses, bipoc businesses, and I, I think that there, there's there's a ton of resources out there for focusing on where you're buying your goods and services from. So I think all consumers can do research, and again, you know in in, in light of heightened social awareness, brought on last, last summer and at, at other times, we have even more resources available and it's becoming even more important for big business to look at ways that they buy goods and services from, smaller business, from small businesses, including those that are disadvantaged. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot that consumers can do in, in terms of research about companies. Within the Community Economic Development Clinic, which is a free transactional, which just means business law, kind of everything that doesn't involve a dispute, we work with small businesses and nonprofits in the capital region, many of which are are small and disadvantaged businesses, and look at ways for them to access capital, access uh, market opportunities, and and do the, the great work that they set out to do
0: if you're interested in the paper you can take a look at that in the show notes but before we let you go we have to go to the lightning round are you ready for the lightning round
1: i'm, I'm ready ben
0: all right here we go you touched on it just a second ago but we're going to bring it back here the community economic development clinic you've been leading that clinic for a couple of years and <laughs> leading it and doing a fantastic job supporting local business but what are you guys working on right now what's going on in that clinic
1: we have a ton of great work that's happening now. And really, the story of the clinic is, is told best through our students on the one hand and our clients on the other. It's really a, you know, they, 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 they showcase the, the work that we do. On the student front, we have nine second and third year students a semester who are in this, this spring term. We've got nine students with us, many of whom are working with live clients for the first time. And we also have a number of advanced students and a pro bono scholar this year or this semester working with us too. In terms of client work, we have a number of initiatives and priorities. We continue to work with individuals around achieving their goals, whether it's to start a new restaurant or new, we we have some businesses approaching us in terms of mobile food vending or catering and the hospitality side of things. We're also engaging in an initiative to focus on the particular neighborhood priorities around economic development for neighborhoods in Albany. So just as an example, we're starting with with Albany's South End neighborhoods. Students in the clinic now are gathering information and, and planning material from the last dozen or so years around planning for housing. Uh, economic development, you know sort of other aspects of neighborhood life. Part of that work involves going to neighborhood meetings, interviewing local leaders, talking about you know, things like the Port of Albany expansion, you know 300 new jobs coming to the, the riverfront uh, very close to abutting the South end, looking at job training, who's going to access those jobs, where are they going to live? Taking, in other words, taking a holistic approach to community economic development, and then making sure that our client selection aligns with the priorities that those neighborhoods have articulated, and to the extent that we're able to collect information in in that manner, sort of you, you know it, using uh, some ethnographic uh, research methods, which include listening, you know, documenting meetings, attending meetings, and then looking for existing information that's out there, whether it's on blogs or social media, and then kind of putting that through our our frame as a free legal service resource in the community. That's something that that we're incredibly excited about, and that's a new initiative that we're working on uh, this semester now, and hope to have more information to share with your audience and with the, the law school community and with the Albany community and the Capital Region audience more broadly pretty soon.
0: Making that impact. We love to hear that on the podcast here. Spring is finally getting here, kind of, sort of little bit we're recording uh yeah like you said in mid-march so spring f- sometimes feels a little colder than it really should be but what's your favorite thing about the spring there
1: are two things that i'm most excited about right now in, in the middle of march one are in our yard i live a little bit about 15 minutes south of campus we have these flowers that come up they're called snowbells and they're just starting to poke their head up little white flowers so that's that's always a sign that spring's coming and then the maple syrup's running so i'm um I have an uncle who's very close by and give him a hand collecting maple sap to boil down for maple syrup. And I have a couple of boys at home and that's something that they enjoy eating and participating in too.
0: Wow. See, I learn things on the podcast all the time. Maple (coughs) syrup. Awesome. That's great. One thing with spring though is baseball, Major League Baseball coming back, hopefully in some way, shape or form. Now, I don't know this about you, Ted, but are you a baseball fan?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm absolutely a baseball fan.
0: So, okay, the question then is, are you a Yankees, a Red Sox, or like us chosen few, a Mets fan? And what do you think about their upcoming season for whoever you follow? I grew up in the 80s, and
1: 1986 was a great year for many reasons. It cemented my love of the New York Mets. I was fortunate growing up to go to Shea Stadium to watch games, and then once Citi Field was built, um, I used to live in New York City. and. Had the opportunity to go to games at City Field. My wife is a new is a San Francisco Giants fan. She's from the West Coast, so we're we're definitely a National League household. But we have a you know, disagreement about which teams to root for in particular. Yeah, a, a, as far as the Mets season, I'm I'm hoping for good things, right? I think we we've, we've got we've got some talent. Hopefully, hopefully we'll we'll come together.
0: Spoken like a true lawyer for <laughs> analyzing his baseball team. <laughs> Last one, always the same one at the end of the podcast, but one that we really appreciate all of our guests giving us an answer on is, is there anything you'd like to say to the Albany Law School community?
1: The past year has been something that none of us anticipated, none of us really could have seen coming. Being a part of this community, teaching students, uh, mentoring students, engaging with them, working with clients, working with uh, across the institution faculty, staff, the the library, communications, has just really been excellent and at least kept me going professionally. Being a part of this community, largely in a remote way as we've taken steps to build community, I think has been incredibly important. Our work has continued in the Justice Center and the need in the community for lawyers and law students to provide work, to, to give legal information, to give legal advice when it's supervised is is just incredibly important. So I think the you know ha- being part of a community, sharing our skills and resources, being grateful for what we have. I'm I'm incredibly grateful every day for what I have. I have a family. I you know I've, I have a job that I love. I get the chance to share it both with students, with clients, and with others. So we've done incredibly well. I think as a as a group, as a community, um, in building community, and I think it will make us stronger going forward.
0: Ted thank you so much for being on the podcast really appreciate it well thanks Ben